0: Your voice matters, even if no one else hears it. And I think trying to find the value in that just for you um, can help, or at least it helped me.
1: On this episode of STEAM Scenes, Emma Barry is on the STEAM seat. Emma is a teacher, a novelist, a recovering academic and a former political staffer. She's had a hell of an interesting uh, career life. She lives with her high school sweetheart and a menagerie of pets and children in Virginia, and she occasionally finds time to read and write. Emma and I talk about a lot of things, like how English studies weaponizes taste, which um, I agree with, how any writing you do is intrinsically valuable, and that literary fiction and romance are not as far apart as readers. Some readers might think. We also have some real talk about how sometimes it gets really hard to slog through the rough patches of being a writer, and Emma shares how she managed to overcome it. And I read a steamy excerpt from her book, Chick Magnet. Buckle in my friends, we're in for a steamy ride. Emma, hi, thanks so much for being here.
0: Ella it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Oh, they see, I'm trying a new um a new opening where I'm not reading the bio, and so I feel a little lost at the moment. So hey, <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should have read the bio. <laughs> so, Emma, you have a new book that, as of this recording, but it will come out this will come out much later, is coming out very soon, January. Yes. 24th.
0: I know it seems so soon but it also seems so far away.
1: <laughs> so it's Chick Magnet and it's a great it's a it's a it's a really clever idea about a vet a veterinarian and a chick loving I guess it's YouTube influencer
0: yeah, the idea her. is like she's like YouTube and TikTok that she's sort of like across different platforms, but that her like niche is that she keeps backyard chickens, and her brand is all about her backyard chickens.
1: Uh, your bio is great because uh, your your uh, your headshot is great because you're holding a chicken.
0: It's true. It's one of I do keep backyard chickens, and that you is, do. Oh. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is one of the four hens that I currently have. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's so fun. So I guess you knew what you were writing about when you were writing about keeping backyard chickens.
0: That part, yes. The influencer part, no. Like I'm definitely not like a social media queen or anything, but the chickens themselves I've kept for about five years and I think chickens are really fun and interesting. And there is this like whole online like chicken community of like, it has like different kind of iterations. And I just think it's really fascinating. And then I was like, this would be a great job for a protagonist to have in romance.
1: Okay, is the chicken the online chicken community is it contentious like like sometimes the romance community
0: can be contentious? Um I don't think it's quite as dramatic as the <laughs> online romance community. Um there are there are different things that come up and there's different like I don't want to say levels, but different kind of identities. So there's like part of it. That's very like how to um, right. influencers who are very focused and like, here's, you know, how to keep chickens and what's the best material to have in the bottom of your coop. And like, how do you treat illness? And then there are sort of chicken influencers who are more lifestyle i I'm um, like, one of my favorites is drinking with chickens and she's, no. a co- oh my God, it's amazing. She's a cocktail blogger who also like has a big garden and keeps chickens. And she photographs the cocktails with her hands. Um, and the pictures are amazing and the recipes are really good too. But like, um, it's sort of, so the chicken thing like grows and shows up in these kind of other, other ways I would say, but it's not as dramatic as the romance community for sure.
1: (laughs) Do the chickens drink the cocktails?
0: No, no, no. no. It would be (laughs) hilarious in my I think it'd probably be like, I don't think chickens would probably do well with booze. Honestly, no, it's totally (laughs) like an aesthetic (laughs) thing, not actually giving the chickens booze.
1: (laughs) What made you, because you've only been doing this only, you've been raising chickens for four years, what made you decide to get a chicken?
0: So I in where I live, when it's the summer, it's really easy to find farmers' markets and to find farm fresh eggs. And once you like grow accustomed to an egg that is fresh, if you eat eggs, of course, um, it is very sad to go back to grocery yes. store eggs because yeah. like they're just they're not as good. And so I was complaining to my critique partner and sometime co-writer Genevieve Turner about this and she lives on like an actual farm and she keeps chickens and turkeys and she has goats and horses like all kinds of stuff. And she was like, No, you should keep chickens. It's really easy. And I was like, This is a lie. It cannot be this easy. And so I started reading about it. And I was like, Well, this doesn't seem too bad. Um, and so it, the hard part was convincing my husband. But as soon as I was like, You can build the coop, he got excited. He was like, Okay, this is like a project. And so he got into that. Um, and then we got the chickens. Um, and they've been, it's been fascinating. Like, I was really only thinking about the eggs, I was not thinking about like chickens as pets or that chickens would be fun in. Any other way. I was just like, I would like fresh eggs that come out of my backyard. Um, But the chickens have been delightful and now I feel like they're like a part of our family and and we love them as well as love their eggs.
1: That's so cool. So now what kind of influencer is Nicole, which is your – Protagonist and check back it out.
0: So my thought is that she started out on YouTube, but I think has kind of branched out, um, and that she's on TikTok. And she's really more of the like how-to type, but a little bit of like the the lifestyle type as well. You know, she talks about like photographing her garden, and um, you know she also talks about how many of her fans don't necessarily have chickens, which is something you can sort of pick up in the comments sometimes. That like right. sometimes okay. the fan base are are chicken keepers, but sometimes you get the sense that the fan base are not chicken keepers. <laughs> and are watching because, like, the person's really charming or whatever um, and that they're just into it for, like, kind of that that side of it.
1: Oh, very cool. You know, it's funny. I have a book that's probably about 60,000 words in, and mm-hmm. it is about an influencer. Um, mm. And it was inspired by, like, an influencer that, like, flamed out spectacularly, or although now she's back. Um <laughs> And like kind of watched her like, or, or, you know, and so I took like one little bit of that experience with her relationship publicly flaming out yeah. and um, and, and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Let's see what happens um, in my world. And I'm very curious about that part of writing an influencer and mm-hmm. what kind of research were you doing? It's a weird world and I don't quite know that I'm getting it right in the book that I'm working on. So I'm kind of curious about how you went about that?
0: Well, so I had not really watched much influencer content until COVID started. Just my kind of media consumption diet was like sort of like TV and books. And then when COVID started, that really changed. Like I, I had honestly never watched a YouTube video that wasn't like music. <laughs> but then, oh, wow. I know, I know I'm such a dork, but I just was like sort of focused on other things. And then during lockdown, started like watching more stuff on YouTube, started watching TikTok and just became really fascinated by it. So there have been been several good like longer features about influencers like Vox did a really long feature about the like influencer houses in LA Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, and so I started reading like as much like behind the scenes stuff as I could find and the funny thing about almost all of those articles is you can see how the influencers still maybe have the mask on even as the like reporters trying to like pry it off and like sort of try to get down to the truth is a lot of those profiles sort of end up feeling like an extension of their brand in some way that I, I tried to sort of get into that and then just consuming as much of the media as I could and then like really like living in the comment section and trying to see how people were interacting with it because right. the like sort of parasocial side of it is really interesting to me and I find myself doing it too as a consumer. Like you'll watch somebody's video about planting a garden and then suddenly be so invested in the outcome, which is ridiculous. It's like a five minute video about their <laughs> garden, but you'll be like, well, I don't know. Is the lavender going to thrive in that location? And I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Um so that was sort of how I approached the research. Um, but I too share the concern that it's really I could guess really hard to get it right because I don't think anyone wants to take off the mask, or I think it's really hard. I wish I knew some like bigger influencers that I could ask, but I don't. And I, I don't want to like show up in someone's DMs and be like, I'm researching a book, right?
1: Hey, can you help me figure this out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sound I mean, like a is,
0: weirdo. It is kind of more, you
1: know, definitely more of that sort of like research-watching watching mm-hmm. what they're doing seeing how they're interacting reading stories about them i there the one particular influencer that i was following and i i feel like i was i'm in like cuz i was looking at a lifestyle influencer and i think mm-hmm. that's a little bit that sounds a little bit more toxic than chicken influencers yeah. although i could be wrong <clears throat> um and there was like a lot of like hate youtube videos about this particular person like mm-hmm. two hour long rants about why they were so awful oh, wow. and yeah it was kind of wild it was definitely this sort of crazy rabbit hole and um a friend of mine who is sort of like we cheer each other on with our writing and we're not critique partners but we'll sprint together and stuff like that she was like you just have to start writing the book because mm-hmm. i was getting so consumed by the research um because it was so fascinating and it was this sort of like almost like sociological study of how hard things can get online.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I do the same thing with the research. And for me, I want to understand it well enough that I can yeah. fit my story and my characters inside the boundaries of what's possible. But sometimes I definitely worry that I can get so – caught up in like having to get it right that I become obsessed with a level of granularity that readers will never care about, right? So it's like, right, right. how do you make it feel real but not be like, I must describe all of the little nitty gritty details that no one but me will ever care about? Right, right. I think I wrote – I wrote
1: one – in one of my books, I think like it was like the book before last, I think, yeah. I had this whole scene where I did all of this research into a New England clam bake. Mm-hmm. And my editor came back with, do we really need 10 pages of a clamp Because <laughs> <laughs> I like went into detail about what you do and the <laughs> rock weed and the this mm-hmm. and that. And she was like, cut all that shit, will you?
0: Yes. No, I that's happened to me more times than I could count. Or you find yourself being like, no, we must keep this one line. Okay, we'll lose the whole rest of it. But this one line <laughs> has to justify the 40 hours I spent. Learning all about this, um, <laughs> yes, and trying to get that balance right with Nick and Nick's job was really hard for me. And I hope I walked the line well, but we'll see. <laughs> um,
1: so I guess we should maybe back up a little bit. And you have this this really sort of interesting background. Um, where you're an academic or recovering academic, um, also a political staffer, which I'm kind of like, Ooh, tell me more Um, (laughs) on that. And you're also a romance writer. And I'm really curious how that all fits in the Venn diagram of you. Like, how did you get to romance writing?
0: Well, that's sort of a good question. So right after college, I moved to DC and I worked for a senator for a couple of years. And I, I mean, I was just writing for him, essentially like answering mail and writing some very low level speeches and that kind of thing. And I loved working in the Hill. It was great. It was exciting. Um, but I was also working, I mean, like 60 to 70 hours a week and yeah. it was, you know, like a little bonkers. And I missed books. And well, I knew smart, thoughtful people in DC, it also was more political and not like partisan politics, that didn't bother me actually, but like interpersonal office politics were very exhausting to me. Mm -hmm. And it sort of felt like the the wrong people got ahead and I just – Got very tired of that, wow. and so in my head, academics was very different. Ha ha! Joke was on me. Um, like, so I was like, I'm going to go to grad school and you know get back to because I'd studied English as an undergraduate. I was like, I'm get back to books, and that's going to be great. And I'm going to have more like work-life balance. Every single aspect. Of this was a total lie, by the way. Like none of this worked out. So I went to grad school um, first in Boston and then Virginia, um, and I got my PhD. And uh, in grad school, I was studying popular literature. I was studying um, like newspaper novels from the 19th century. And a lot of them had- Very cool. I mean, I think it's cool. Sadly, there are no jobs. I I think that is the thing to know. There are absolutely no jobs in the field that I was in. But there is often a romance kind of strand in these kinds of books. I mean, some of them really are even like- proto-romance novels. Um, and one of my professors in grad school was telling me about how she was teaching this class on women's popular culture, and she was going to teach some romance novels. And I was like, romance novels? I've never read one of those. And so I literally Googled best romance novel ever, because if I was going to read one, right? What came up? I'm dying well, new is the All About Romance, the, the book blog, their list, right? And they do like an annual list, or maybe it's like every three or four years or something, but like the reader's vote. And okay. the number one book that whatever whatever list I was finding was Lord of Scoundrels by Loretta Chase. So I was like, okay, that's going to be my one. It's going to be my one romance novel. Um, Ha, hilarious. Every part of this is not going to work out. And so I sat down and read that book and I loved it. I had not had fun reading a book in like 10 years at that point yeah, yeah. Um, because all of my reading was for school and yeah. all of my reading was going to be for my dissertation and I was going to write about it. Um, and so books had just stopped being fun for me. Yeah. And so I read that book and I loved it. And I think there's like critiques of it and I don't know that I think it's like the best first romance to give someone. I mean, there's a whole lot to say about that book, but for me at that moment, um, you know, I just adored it and I loved everything about it. And so so then I read like 50 more romances in the next month. I mean, no kidding. Like I was on maternity leave and I just read romance. I nursed my children. I have twins and like read wow. romances nonstop for like six months. Actually, um,
1: that, that's kind of nice.
0: I mean, in, except <laughs> for the lack of sleep. Like I did not yeah. sleep and I read romances and nursed my children. If I've been sleeping, like maybe. That would um, have been perfect
1: if they were sleeping there.
0: It would have been perfect. Um, and at the end of that sort of experience – I wanted to write a novel, which I had never wanted to do. Like a lifetime of reading literary fiction, you know, studying, you know, literature with like a big L, you know, and two Ts had never made me want to write a book or never made me think I could write a book. But at the end of reading all of those romances, I mean, and not the end, I'm mostly still reading lots of romances. Um, you know, I wanted to write something that could be that fun to read and could be that joyous um, versus kind of often the heavy kind of sad books that I was reading for school. Um, And so I sat down to write one novel. Again, are we sensing a pattern here? I was going to write one just to like do it, just to try it out. And it was terrible. Like my first book was so bad and I was angry. I was angry that i wasn't what better was bad at writing about it what was bad about it like the characters were really flat and like i started out with ideas for them but they quickly became these like sort of caricature like cartoon versions of the people in my head and like the dialogue was really like stilted and like plot heavy and like expositiony and like the villain was really like ridiculous and villainous
1: mustache <laughs> i love it
0: I mean, pretty much right, and it was just like, like I didn't have enough plot. So, like, I finished, and it was like fifty-five thousand words, and that was like clearly not the right length, and like just everything about it was bad. And I was pissed because it felt as if, like, a lifetime of reading books, I should know how to write one, right? I mean, ha, hilarious, as if those things are really related, but. I was so mad. So I went out and got a bunch of craft books and started, you know, reading about how to write a book, which you would think that's where I would have started, but I didn't start there. Um, And then I started revising it and it got better, but I was like, okay, I'm going to write one more book. Now I'm going to put, you know, into use all these lessons I've picked up. So I wrote a second book and it was better, but it was still not good. Um, And then I was like, okay, this is it third, third time's the charm. And the third book I wrote is the first book I sold. Um, so it just took me a while, but I sort of fell in love with writing along the way, but it was Purely out of being pissed that my first effort was not like a masterpiece. So, now (laughs) what was that book? So, that book, um, when it was originally published, was called Special Interests and it was published with Karina Press. And I've since gotten my rights back and it's now been republished under the name The One You Want. And it's a book set in DC. It is not, (laughs) even though it's like slightly inspired by my experiences on Capitol Hill, it's not autobiographical or anything. Um, But it's about like a woman who works for a construction union, um, and she's been going through some stuff, and she and she's very idealistic. And she ends up meeting this guy who works in a Senate office who is incredibly cynical and is very much like, I just want to get a deal done. And they're very drawn to each other, but obviously are extremely different people, um, and right. so they sort of end up dating, but like they don't think, I think mutually don't think there's any way they're going to be able to make it work, and then obviously they do because it's a romance. But the idea was, like I was interested in kind of opposites attract, but where they're ostensibly on the same side like they're both Democrats um but how could there be these really deep divisions even with somebody you should have like a lot in common with um right. and so that was kind of the idea of that book
1: that's really cool now so you're writing the, so you're, you're writing romance I, I'm mm-hmm. sort of fascinated by the fact that you have this English lit background and you never once had any desire to write and it wasn't until you read a romance and you were like oh yeah, I think I want to write. Like, that's, I think that's really fascinating.
0: Um, I think it's that there really is a division between like the people who write books, like MFAs um, and creative writers, and then the people who do like the criticism of the books. Um, even like in my program now, where there are, there's a big MFA program, there's not a lot of overlap between the like literature professors and the creative writing people. They're very different. Um, that's really so surprising. I, I would, I would think so too. But I, I mean, I I have no way to, to explain why it's that way. It's just that there seems to be this huge division. And I, I am an analytical person and um maybe more of a mind person than a feeling person. I think I'm like a big feelings, but I keep them like contained because they feel unstable to me. Um, And so romance writing gave me a way to kind of tap into that and to kind of use this other part of myself that I think I'd always ignored. But I don't know. I just, I love reading literature. I love literary fiction. I genuinely it just is not the way my voice comes out when I write creatively. And I'm not sure that I could, like, I don't think I could remake myself into someone who writes the kind of books that you teach in a college lit class, you know? My voice is more commercial, I think.
1: Right, right. And I, well, I mean, I think it's really interesting when I, when you think about what you were studying in grad Mm -hmm. school, that was the commercial fiction, that was the genre fiction, that was the pulp fiction of its day. One hundred percent, yeah. I don't think that you're that far off, right?
0: (laughs) Yes, I mean, and definitely like reading those books and part of why that was my dissertation topic is that I did enjoy reading that commercial fiction and it was like, how do I make this like an official topic, right, like how do I make this like acceptable to that like literary establishment? many of whom also think those books are kind of trashy too. So like there was kind of a sense even when I was working on my dissertation where people would be like, right, but are these books actually good, right? And there was sort of this sense that like the answer was clearly no. I was supposed to say, no, these books are terrible. I wasn't supposed to be like, no, actually, I think they're really interesting. And what is different between these books and Hawthorne? Like I was not supposed to say that. There was a very clear like value system, you know, to that too.
1: That's really interesting because, you know, I, I mean, I think probably most famously, right, is Charles Dickens who wrote- Wrote mm-hmm. that in the newspaper, books, and yeah. hilariously, that's why his shit is so long because he got paid. <laughs> but, you know, he was he was trying to get paid, so he was extending his work out mm-hmm. very, very long so he could continue getting paid. But now he's taught as as sort of classic literature. Like there is a crossover. Jane Jane Austen too was sort of poo pooed as as oh that look at her romance books, and now she's considered a classic author.
0: Yeah. And I mean, in Raymond Chandler is another example oh, of someone yes. who is writing like Perfect. crime fiction and you do yeah. see like scholarship on Raymond Chandler. I mean, what I can say is that I think at any given moment, like when you actually zoom in, what's happening literarily is often like much more rich and interesting than the kind of way the, the canon is just by definition going to like reduce the complexity of things, right? Because you're going to take like one book published in a 10 year period and be like, okay, that's the great book of the 1860s. And like, you're not going to read anything else from the 1860s, but if you zoom in, there's going to be like a million other things happening. And I mean, I wish I had an answer for it. I just think that English studies weaponizes taste. I mean, like that's the only thing I can say. Oh, I love that that. actually. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, there's a sense that like people's taste and what they like says something about how smart they are or what their value is as people. And um, I think English professors know that intellectually because we've all read Borgia, but like I don't think we often live that way. Like we know that's snobby and bad, but I think a lot of them still kind of weaponize it in that way.
1: Oh my god that's that's actually a really great way to put it. Um and it's unfortunate because I do think popular fiction there there is this sort of connection if you look at popular fiction and you look at what's going on in the world. Kind of like and it's really unfortunate because cinema does this, film studies programs do this. They take a look at the popular genres and they're able to sort of say, "Hey, this is a reflection of a very specific period in time and what was going on and this is a the artistic reaction to it and and it happens in genre material and i don't think Academia gives it enough credit.
0: Oh, 100%. And I think in English, it's been almost exactly the opposite tendency. And the books that are more like overtly political or that chew on like whatever the issues are of a given day are often treated as kind of less serious than the ones that Mm -hmm. either don't treat that material at all or treat it in a more sublimated way. And you can even see it in like an individual's like body of work. like, no one treats Sanctuary as, like, the serious Faulkner novel, even though that novel is about, like, rape and race and, like, very overt political topics. It's a less overtly political novel that gets the scholarship more often. Or, like, Herman Melville. Like, we don't tend to talk about Marty, which is a novel that talks about colonialism really directly. Like, we talk right. about Moby Dick because that is less obviously political. And so I think right. that actually plays into what happens in literary studies, for sure that's so fascinating. This is a whole other topic
1: Uh, (laughs) that we can talk about. Um, But I'm sort of curious, when you were writing these first books and you're writing romances, were you you always like, yes, I'm going to write sex on the page? Or did you shy away from that at first?
0: Um, My first two books do not have as much sex on the page. And the third one has more. And I think it, it was not a conscious decision as much as it was something that grew out of my growing confidence as a writer and my growing understanding of my voice. And so as I became more confident, I began asking like what can I show in a love scene, what can I show through writing sex that I can't show any other way, right? And right. so like how can this be like a tool of characterization or a, a tool of, you know, the plot complications I'm trying to build um and and just like it just felt to me like leaving something in the toolbox to not write that. So again, I I never wrote anything that was fully closed door, but definitely like slightly lower heat. And I don't know that I'm a high heat writer now. I don't think I am. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, but but just to kind of embrace that a little.
1: That's really cool. How was writing the first, like that first intimate moment? Was it awkward or did you find that you were just like, yeah, okay, just another scene, right?
0: I mean it was a little awkward at first. It in part because it's intimate in like a vocabulary sense? Like what words you Mm. choose, they're going to put some readers off. I don't think there's any like universally embraced terms for genitalia that everyone loves. And you see that on, you know, Twitter sometimes people will be like, well, I hate this word. And someone else will be like, no, actually I like that word, but I hate this word. And so you sort of realize like, okay, there's no universally accepted vocabulary here. And so what would this character say? What would This character to think, and how can the language that I'm using, you know, reveal the character and reveal how they feel about the moment and all of that stuff? Um, But without, for me, I had to kind of set aside. What are readers going to think and just be focused on the characters in that moment. But it requires knowing them very intimately, you know, what is their sexual history and how do they feel about that? And what have they done? And what have they not done? And how do they feel about that history? And then how is this moment going to be different? Um, And so it it requires an intimacy with the character um, that I think writing them going to the grocery store maybe does not have the same kind of a sense. Right.
1: It's really interesting because it's, it's a weird balance, right? Because I think particularly with commercial fiction, you're always writing with your reader in mind, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you want to, is this going to appeal to the reader? Is the reader going to enjoy the story? Is the because the, that, that's what commercial fiction is.
0: Yes. But.
1: So to have to step away from that when writing the intimate scenes, because you know you're not going to make everybody happy with the word choice. Yeah. Like, you know, one person's, oh yeah, that is so sexy, is another person's absolute cringe. Mm -hmm. So you're never going to, like you said, you're never going to get that right. And so it's really interesting to have to shut the reader out at that point. It it almost is like we have to close the door to the reader to give them the open door scenes, if that makes sense?
0: Yes. No, 100%. And I, I feel like – my thinking about the reader is something i can do at certain moments but that i have to stop doing and intimate scenes are just one example for me like i often think a lot about the reader when i'm writing up the like proposal for the book which i do even for something that like i'm not going to give to my agent necessarily like i'll often write like a three page treatment of the book and i'll think about the reader a lot at that point you know how are we going to title this how would we cover this how would we market this but then oh, wow. i I, <laughs> I did not used to do that and i did not sell books and so like i had to start doing that to be oh, smarter the market um, but then I really do have to shut the reader out for a while because otherwise I can't hear myself and and then the reader comes back for me when I'm editing but I don't I don't know that I can think about the reader constantly because it makes it really hard to hear me.
1: Interesting. I'm sort of fascinated by this. So you basically do a three page treatment. You have the title before you begin. Mm-hmm. You know what the book cover is gonna look like. Well at least and I have an start, idea well, again. <clears throat> yeah. And then you start writing. And and when did you switch from one from the just writing to doing that?
0: Well, Chick Magnet was like a turning point. So I had this kind of early section of my career um, where I was unagented for a while um, and then had an agent and it did not work out and we split. And then I had this long period of writer's block, kind of in the middle between like 2018 and 2020 when I was considering quitting writing. I just was not fun anymore. I was stressed out. Um, I just felt like I couldn't write anything that would be successful in the market. And and Chick Magnet was kind of the turning point. I wanted to write one last book for me. Are we sensing a pattern again? Um, like, this is gonna be like my book. Um and I was just gonna write it for myself. Um, but I did have like an outline when I began, not really sense about the cover, but I did have the title. Um and I, you know, sat down and wrote that book and then I finished it and I was like, well. Maybe you know, and I hadn't felt that hopeful. I hadn't felt that possibility in a long time, um, and that's when you know, queried agents again, and then we went out and sub, and we sold the book. And I mean, who knows what will happen with it? I'm happy with the book, regardless, kind of of the outcome. But everything I've written since then, or I've worked on since then, I've had like the three to five page treatment to begin with, and I found it making my writing less painful because then I know what's going to happen and why. And even when I change it, even when I'm like, no, 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 like now that I've been writing this character, I don't think they would react this way. In that moment, or I think we got to take it another direction. I found that to be really useful, and for me, again, if I can think about the market at the start, then I can kind of turn it off in the middle and still feel confident that I'm writing a marketable book. And so that alleviates that stress and lets me be kind of selfish when I'm drafting.
1: What do you think? What What do you think was the thing, for mm-hmm. like a better term, that sold this book?
0: What do I think was the thing? I think it was, it may have the just chickens. been the title. <laughs> I mean, um, it's funny. Almost everyone I know in the last couple of years has had to change their title. Like almost everyone I know, their working title has not been acceptable to their publisher, but we never talked about changing Chick Magnet. like That, was, that never even came up. Because um, I was like, I'm, I will defend this title, but I never had to. Um, I think it is the kind of concept of the books. So I think the chickens were helpful... Um, and and maybe the social media influencer angle. I think that, and certainly mine is not the only one in the market with that in it. But I think that's really appealing right now.
1: Interesting. So I gotta hurry up and finish this one that I'm working on. That you do, yeah. Like (laughs) six months. Um, (laughs) that's really kind of interesting. Um, so I don't. I'm not quite ready to dig into your intimate intimate scene yet. But you have a lot of pub of books before chick magnet like and Mm -hmm. obviously uh you know the Political Persuasion series, Fly Me to the Moon series, which looks really fascinating. That's sort of set in the 60s.
0: Yes. And those I co-wrote with my friend Genevieve. And yeah, they're essentially like Apollo 13 with banging. I mean, that's the way I I would describe them. But yeah, they're set in the 60s. Astronauts are the protagonists for some of the books. Engineers for some of the other ones. Um, But we were really interested in like 60s gender roles and like what does femininity mean then and what does masculinity mean and kind of trying to unpack Pack and subvert those things. But yeah, that's the kind of idea there. And there there was another series where we wrote it, got good reviews, and there's sort of Cult favorites, I guess. Like I still hear from readers, uh, particularly the second book, Earthbound, which came out in 2016. So like a long time ago in the romance wow. world, and I it still seems to have to have some readers. So it's like writing the Rocky Horror Picture Show or something. I think that's <laughs> like,
1: really cool.
0: Never mm-hmm. a hit, but kind of always always simmering out there. <laughs>
1: I guess one of the things that sort of strikes me with your body of work is it feels like are you like. They f- it it feels like these are sort of like you're writing in all these like different genres or, tr- or like like are you like Chick Magnet is clearly comedy like rom com mm-hmm.
0: and- yeah.
1: And the political sp- persuasion seems a little bit more intrigue, or am, do I have that wrong?
0: Um, I mean, it's it's contemporary, I would say, I, and I would and I would call even chick magnet contemporary romance, not rom-com. I mean, it, rom-com. there are rom-com elements to it, but it's also like, his business is failing and her ex gaslighted her. <laughs> so like, um, I mean, I hope it's funny, but I think there's also like some heavier things in their backstory. And I, I would say the political persuasions are, um, you know, contemporary romance. The characters in that series are in their 20s. So I guess it's like potentially on the high edge of new adults versus like now I could not write people in their 20s anymore. I'm definitely like writing characters in their 30s at this point. Um, so yeah.
1: That's really cool. That's – because I, I was like, oh, this is really – like your body of work just on the whole is super fascinating in terms of how how varied it is. Thank you. It seems, which I think is really cool. Um, like, okay, like this funny guy. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm like, oh, I have to buy that one. That one sounds so, so good. <laughs> I'm
0: so excited about that book. Um yes, I am psyched for that one. It's coming out of May and um I, I just couldn't be happier with how that one turned out.
1: Now is that one, is that one also through MontLake?
0: It is. Yes. That is the okay. second book on my my contract with them.
1: Okay, cool. Because it's, you uh, you know, so everybody knows what we're talking about here. There are no chickens.
0: No chickens. Um, it's totally different, completely <laughs> unrelated in every way.
1: And it's at New York City, and you've got um, Funny Guy is that a comedian, right? I'm guessing he,
0: that's he is. Comedy. He's a comedian. He does stand up and he appears on a sketch comedy show, which may tape on Saturday night, nights in New York City. <laughs> um, and he's like a tornado of a human being, like he's just an absolute chaos muppet. Um, very famous, and his ex was a pop star, and she wrote a song about him and about kind of what a mess he is, and it's become like a huge hit. Um, And so there's this media firestorm, and he hides out at the apartment of his childhood best friend, and she is like the opposite of a chaos Muppet. She's like a total order Muppet. But there's two things. They've been best friends for 25 years, and there's two things she's never told him. One is that she's in love with him, and two is that she's going to try finally to get over him. So she's applying for her dream job across the country. So it's uh, friends to lovers and forced proximity. Um, and that's the setup. I
1: love this concept. Now, where did this idea come from?
0: <laughs> um, well, so when I was a kid, um, I became really fascinated with Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and <Okay>. like- so. <laughs> When uh, when I was nine, we moved from Montana to Dallas. And so I was like trying very much to impress this girl. I was having sleepover words. I wanted her desperately to be my friend. And I felt like, you know, the biggest hick from the sticks. So I was like, you know, should we stay up and like watch The Little Mermaid? And she's like, no, we're gonna watch the coolest show on television. And I was like, of course, of course. What's the coolest show on television? She's (laughs) like, it's Saturday Night Live. (laughs) And so from kind of that point out, for about 10 years, I mean, I always watched it. I always thought it was fascinating always wanted to write for the show, Um, and it has just kind of always been in the back of my head. And I think the show is higher profile in some ways than it's ever been. I don't know that as many people watch, but it feels like the cast is more celebrities now, maybe, than ever. Um, And so I was just really interested in that idea and I've also really always loved pop songs where it's clear that the singer is like absolutely letting their ex have it. And so I was always like, what would it be like if someone wrote that song about you? So if like you're the, not that you're the one singing it, but you're the object of like tights on my boat, right? So like if that's you, (laughs) the object of the Dixie song and the chick song, like what would that be like? And so I wanted to sort of combine those two, those two things. Oh, that is really cool. I'm excited
1: for this one. Me too. this one sounds like really excellent. I'm really stoked for that. That's a, that is definitely my wheelhouse dealing with like celebrity and all of that in the books. Absolutely in my wheelhouse. So we've got a little steamy scene from Chick Magnet. Um, can you set this up for us? Where are we in the book?
0: Okay. So we're we're in the second half of the book. It is definitely a slow burn. Um, and so Nick and Will have gone from not really liking each other, because he is a veterinarian. He doesn't like really approve of her whole backyard chicken thing because he's seen the like other side of it, right? He's seen people bringing in sick birds because they don't know what they're doing. And right. um, so he's annoyed with her at first. And then they slowly become friends. They're both... I mean damaged in many ways and no one else around them really like sees that but they can sort of both see through each other's masks she sees through his grumpy and knows like why he's kind of pushing other people away and he sees through her sunshine and sees kind of who she is underneath Um, and so he is um, her grandmother grew up in this town that she moved to that's why she moved there and he figured out where her grandma's house was and he knew the people who owned the house and so he took her to go and see it um, and so in the scene they have just come back to They live across the street from each other. They've just come back to their houses, and I think she's finally gotten to the moment where she's really like ready to let him in.
1: Wow! Now, had they had an encounter before?
0: I think they they have kissed before. Um, And hilarious story in the original first draft, it it was a lot like hotter hookup initially, and we decided to pull back the heat on that scene. Um, And so at this point, they've kissed, but nothing else has happened.
1: And was it like? A quick kiss? Was it a kind
0: of long kiss? I'm guessing it was Lingering a little bit longer kiss. Lingering. Yeah, okay. with right. like a lot of high heat potential between them. But I think they, particularly her, was feeling like this is too soon. Oh my God, he's my neighbor. Like what if everything goes badly wrong, particularly because she's just had a relationship go badly wrong. Um, but now is the point when she finally feels ready to like take the risk.
1: Okay, cool. There was one – I'm just going to read this first. It's like two sentences or three sentences. And it's not steamy at all, but I just really loved this little paragraph. It's like the tiniest paragraph. And I was like, oh, I want to read that. Um, the thing she was coming to understand was that Will got gruff when he was embarrassed or angry or experiencing any emotion stronger than hunger. Feelings clogged him. And I was like, oh, that's nice. Like that's That was a really expressive moment for somebody who hadn't read through – like read the full book and like right in that you just got who this character was right away. And I love it when when you can when there's like one sec- section or one sentence or one little bit that just explains the character so completely that you can drop into the story anywhere and you can be like, oh, OK, OK, I know I, I think I got this character.
0: Oh, I'm so glad! I'm so glad that worked for you. It was such an existential question, and you were like, "Send me the steam scene," and I was like, "Wait, where does it start?" And like in my head, it was really hard <laughs> to figure out. Like, well, because I think I'm someone. I hope I'm someone. My goal is to be someone whose focus is on emotions, not just yeah. choreography. And so it was like, where does this scene start? Does it start outside? Does it start in his bedroom? Does it start when they take their clothes off? Like, where? where's the beginning of this scene and it was I don't know if I chose right it was really hard to figure out the end is a clear point but I was like I don't know where the beginning is of this. Um, and well, so it was a little tricky
1: well I think it's I think that's really an interesting point and it kind of and I kind of think it shows I guess this the this this just the sheer sort of variety of steamy writing that's out there and also, mm-hmm. What or not even steamy, just intimate, and also what makes it to to you as the writer? What what makes it what to you is the intimate, rather than it doesn't always have to be like about body parts and appendages and what Mm -hmm. goes where and using words that are going to offend certain readers but not Mm -hmm. others. You know, it really (laughs) is about having. It it is about peeling peeling the onion layers or drawing out the the characters in a different in a different way in a physical way even if it's like on the page right and so yeah. that can be something as as innocent and i use that in scare quotes as a peck on the cheek you know mm-hmm. right down to something completely like the most over the top sex you can you you can ever imagine and then times a thousand right (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. and it's really interesting to see like what what people chose choose you know what Mm -hmm. authors choose and whether it's like you know full out sex or it's actually just an intimate moment for me I tend because sometimes you know I'll have people upend it on me and sort of be like well you pick a steamy scene and I'll be like (laughs) okay and I'll go through and it will be very hard and usually what I pick is probably not the most extreme section the mm-hmm. book it's usually pretty tame
0: yeah you that know? makes so much sense
1: yeah yeah it really is so so it's really interesting to do this podcast and see all the different sorts of scenes that come to me and also you know why the authors choose them which i think is really cool mm-hmm. um okay here's another bit again not steamy like not really steamy right like you would like like not graphic "Um, you don't argue with me when I hug you," she whispered. So, of course he started to. <laughs> <clears throat> is is this thank is this thank you? No. While well, she wanted while well, she wanted to thank him, she wasn't going to try and take him to bed out of gratitude. It's that we're both bruised under our clothes, where no one else can see. We're like the apples at the bottom of the bin. He huffed out a laugh. We're bad apples. No, we recognize each other's hurts. She let that sit there between them, the promise of it, the question of it. But she could feel his body responding to her nearness, could feel him growing hard, hungry, giving a preliminary answer. I really love that, apples at the bottom of the bin.
0: Thank you. I'm so glad. There were like three different images in that moment and that's the one that stuck. And so I'm so glad that that worked for you.
1: Yeah. I really love that. I was like, oh, apples. Are...
0: And then the bad apples thing
1: was hilarious. Like I was like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like of course he's like, we're bad apples. And I was like, no, you're just apples at the bottom. Like you're bruised. You're damaged. And I thought that was like such a lovely way to express your dealing with characters that are, have baggage, that are bringing <clears> bar- baggage with them.
0: They're so broken. And I think that's what makes them lovely together because I'm so happy they find each other. But yes, these two have a lot going on. Um,
1: and now, okay. So now we're getting into it. We're getting there. Um, and now we're getting a little – now they're kissing and it's that high heat level kiss. She missed the taste of him, the surging power. The way his hands rushed up her body waves up the shore breaking on her back her stomach this wasn't like their first kiss or their second kiss there was no surprise this time just hunger and arousal a need gnawing adamant need you're not damaged will managed between frantic kisses down her neck he pressed his mouth over her shirt and she boiled underneath at that moment she felt replenish the parched creek bed full to brimming after the flash flood neither are you she caught his head in her hands and dragged him back to her her hips rocked into him but it wasn't right she was too short for this but going into his house dragging him across the street into hers it would risk dissolving the spell she couldn't chance that not when she could feel her libido rushing into every cell in her body the too long dormant hunger roaring back not when she discovered the just right taste of will she dropped back onto her heels kissed his neck for a change. His collarbone, but that freed up his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just loved that. I was like, but that freed up his mouth.
0: It's just a problem when they start talking. Everything's <laughs> good as long as they're not talking. <laughs> it's all going
1: so well. And then she <laughs> let him open his mouth. What does this yes. mean? His question was reasonable, mm-hmm. but this wasn't about reason. It was about the way his thigh felt pushed between her legs, about his hand cupping her ass, about the fresh laundry smell of his clothing. Why hadn't she known before that fucking fabric softeners smelt so goddamn erotic?
0: It's so think- strange to hear it. I haven't been able to bring myself to listen to the audiobook, which is great. I should say the audiobook narrators are fantastic. And I've listened in the first 10 minutes, but it's really hard to hear your own writing because I'm like, oh, should I change that line, right? Like I'm catching all these things. But it is also lovely to hear it and to be like, wow, that really does work. That works the way I wanted it to. I don't
1: think any writer can hear, like, or read their book without being like, no, 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 I should change that. Like, even when I'm doing <laughs> like little social media graphics, I'm like, oh. No, rewrite that sentence. Yeah,
0: <laughs> That's the perfect time to edit your book, actually, is when you're making social media graphics. Actually, that's a really good point, and I should probably make social
1: media graphics in the <laughs> editing part instead of after, because I'm always like, oh, no, there's a better way to say that. <laughs> um, and I, you know, again, this, there's just like, there is a lyricism in the way that you're writing about this, and, and the, you know, the parched creek bed full to brimming after the flash flood, like just these sort of like moments that give you a, this visual impression of what she's feeling is just sort of really cool and beautiful. And I also love, because I was in a in a creative writing class once where there was this writer who just had all of these metaphors. And she was beautiful, lyrical, like gorgeous. She just came up with metaphor after metaphor and she turned in a story that was Literally all, and it was overwhelming. Yeah. or it got to the point that it was distracting. Yeah, and yeah. So, yeah, and so I am always so impressed where you can just when when writers can use it so use it so sparingly, so that it has that impact, but it doesn't draw you out of the story because it becomes when you do when you have too much of it, it becomes so obvious that you can you can sort of see the, the writer's hand, right? Yeah, you can see that it it sort of takes away. It doesn't. It's no longer the character's voice. It becomes the author's voice.
0: Yeah. One thing I was right? trying to do in the part you just read was um there are a couple of metaphors, but they're all like water-based. Yes. Um, and so to try and have like a like a theme like on that page yeah. or those couple of pages, um, so that it so at least, even though I am mixing my my metaphors, I guess, but at least that they seem related to the create, right. like um, like that's how she's feeling at that moment is like replenished, but maybe. All right on that line with overwhelmed emotionally and to try and get all the images to kind of line up around that that kind of idea. Right.
1: And I also loved the fresh laundry smell, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I love that you're – because I think that – I'm curious when you're writing this, like, do you have to go back and layer this in? Is this just all sort of like barfed out in the first draft? I mean, or, or close to because, you know, sometimes I'll have to go back in and be like, okay, what's going on with sensually in the senses, sort yeah. of, because I think it's very easy to fall into feel and touch yeah. when you're doing these scenes, but there's so much more or even uh, temperature, heat, What, but there's so much more to it. What do you, What are you seeing? What are you smelling? Right?
0: I I 100% have to go in and lay it in. The scenes that I tend to write in kind of one big rush tend to be the scenes where nothing is happening and it's very internal. Like there's a scene very early in the book where Nick and her best friend are sort of fighting and she in her head kind of like thinks through like how that came to be. And like that scene I wrote in one big rush and it's more or less untouched in the final book. This scene, most of it is not that way. (laughs) Also my dialogue and the really big bits of choreography first. And then I'll go in and layer in the internal monologue and, and then try to think about the sensory details and like, oh, okay, I haven't I haven't talked about temperature in a while. Okay, I haven't talked about this in a while. And to try to put those, those triggers in. And frequently I overdo it and then have to pull back. So I'm often like underwriting and then overwriting. And then finally, like the third pass in the scene is where I hope I get that balance between... Is this descriptive? Is it not descriptive enough? But usually, it's like dialogue and the really big bits of choreography that come first.
1: And do you do you go back? Like, are you like one of the ones that? go and edit as you go, or do you wait till you get the whole thing down and then you go in and you start adding?
0: I edit add as I go, which is a terrible way to do it and no I, one should do it that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I I do. And a chapter, often I'll write it over the course of two days. So I'll like write the skeleton and then the next day will be like the flesh goes on the bones and then you know maybe at the end of the week I'll go through and kind of do that third round over everything I've written that week. But yeah, I I do edit as I write.
1: I feel like there is no right or wrong, though. Like it's just your process, right? Like that's.
0: I would like to think my process makes that much sense, but I suspect (laughs) I am dysfunctional.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's so funny. Okay, so we're going to go down a little bit. and there's a little, there's like this sort of interesting push and pull, mostly him pushing and her pulling, I think, or, mm-hmm. or him pulling away and her pushing back. And it was, you know, there's like this one little bit of, if, if you were trying to make a case against sex, he was doing a pretty bad job. Um, <laughs> this was more evidence of how it was a good decision. So like, there's, there is this trepidation on his part that they're doing this thing. And she's trying to convince him, like, we can be friends that have this sort of, relationship like Mm -hmm. stay friends even if we have sex and he's not quite buying it but now he's at the point where he's like okay then
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes i think that's accurate
1: (laughs) (laughs) and before she had a second Mm -hmm. to revel in her win she was over his shoulder and he was crossing the yard those great legs of his eating up the ground beneath them while every bit of her hummed in anticipation (laughs) She didn't get a good look at his kitchen before he started up the stairs and then down his upstairs hallway to his bedroom. She bounced once on the bed before he'd covered her with his body. Dreamed about this, she managed between kisses, frantic, breathless kisses, the contact, the break, the gasp, the struggle with her shirt, her pants, and then finding his mouth again. Will rolled back onto his knees and was peeling his shirt up. His muscles were lightly scored and perfect, the sexiest anatomy textbook in the world and she was going to get to touch him. She skimmed her fingertips over his body. How are you a vet? Mm. Weren't vets supposed to be basically disembodied, just hands Mm. and a head? It would be a shame to dis anything this body. How are you a chicken Mm. person, he asked, returning the favor. (laughs) He's like chicken person, like that's a bad thing. (laughs) (laughs)
0: From his perspective, definitely a bad thing. (laughs)
1: Which I thought was hilarious. I was like, oh my god, a chicken
0: person.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He came over her again, his belly brushing over hers. It was an accelerant kerosene on the fire pit that didn't need it. She could have rushed everything then just for the relief of knowing that they'd done it, that she'd had him. But Will obviously had other slower plans in mind. He began fumbling with the clasp of her bra and and Nick could feel gravity find her breasts. It was the swollen, tender point of her cycle. Great for cleavage, not so much for be careful with them. Her voice came out as a shadow. Will immediately froze. Careful. Everything sort of sensitive. She left off not in the good way. He pulled back. He hadn't turned on any lights, and his blinds were still drawn from the night before. The afternoon sunshine was making its way through the cracks, leaving strips of light and dark across his face. Do you want me to put your bra back on? No, I just wish I hadn't said anything at all. They, they get like this at certain times of the month, and touch is a lot then. The burning in her cheeks now is self-conscious, not arousal. She didn't normally mention this to her partners, and when she had, they hadn't normally cared. No one had been cruel, but they also hadn't been conscientious. So she just stopped saying anything at all. She had absolutely no idea why she blurted it out now, but she wanted the words back. Nick, Will cupped her face with one hand. The contact so tender she had to close her eyes. I'd never hurt you. I know. Oh my God.
0: I love this part yeah. so much. I'm so glad you picked this part to read because it's probably my favorite part of the scene, even though obviously like there's no like sex happening at this moment. But yeah. To me, it shows like the intimacy between yeah. them in a way that I really love.
1: Yeah, yeah. This, <clears throat> is, this is where – you could close the door on the rest of this scene and I, and and you have gotten the moment that sort of like intimate connection between them. You have completely nailed it just with this.
0: I'm so glad that worked for you because, again, this, this part means so much to me. And so, um, yeah, that was definitely the goal.
1: I thought – and I loved the – because obviously people with breasts and cycles – Can experience extreme soreness. Yeah. And I don't think, and I'm guilty of this myself, we put enough of that, this is what really happens when Mm -hmm. you're cycling or when you, you know, when this or that or whatever, like these real life things about our bodies come into play. And you know, I think for myself, I'm just so worried about getting it right. I yeah. don't necessarily think, think about these other things that can kind of get in the way, particularly of a woman's pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, and, de- and wh- how is the partner dealing with that? Mm-hmm. And I think that that says a lot about the partner. At that moment.
0: I mean, that was certainly the goal. I mean, one, I wanted to realistically represent, you know, something that I, I mean, I've seen it on the page, but not that often. Um, but two, I what I really cared about, I guess, the most in that moment was Will's reaction, right? And yes. kind of showing that like he's able <clears throat> to see this thing. She's telling him she kind of doesn't really want to tell him and she like regrets it immediately, but he doesn't he react responds. Perfectly, right? And with like incredible empathy toward her. Um, and so it's, it's about her, but it's also, I think, about him and showing the relationship between them. and um, And it's like a metaphor, I think, for every way that they are able to relate to each other. Yes,
1: absolutely, and it's sort of because I, I think later on down in the scene, like he actually has her put the bra back on. Yes, yeah, that's so right. That, so that she is not uncomfortable. So that she has a, also, I think, some protection from you know, if if the t- if touch does go that way, she's got she's got a little bit of protection there just in case. And you know, just making sure that her comfort level. Is taken care of. It just spoke volumes about him and what he thought of the relationship, even though through the scene they keep saying they're friends.
0: Yes. And his hesitancy is because he wants them to be more than friends. So like I think for him, that's like that's not good enough. Like for her, that's she's lying to herself, of course. But like she's saying this can be all it is. And he's like, huh, am I gonna be satisfied with that? And so I think part of when he responds in that way, it's him showing her, like, I'm gonna. Care for you and take care of you, even if you're saying, "That's I don't want that," right? And so I I think that's his commitment to her, right?
1: And we get that sort of in that intimate scene that comes a little bit later or the maybe like the action sequence. I don't even want to say the intimate scene. It's like more like the action sequence. And you know, when her spine had melted and she was, when her spine had melted and she was on her back next to him, shimmying shimmying out of her panties and begging him to hurry up with the condom, it no longer seemed so absurd that she'd confessed her discomfort to him. His response Mm -hmm. felt like being cherished. And because he knew the truth, Because she knew he'd be gentle, she didn't hold anything back, didn't try to protect herself. Because while this might be fucking, it could be honest, it could be caring. And it was caring when he pushed into her. Caring when he cupped her breasts, never squeezing. Caring when his chin tipped up and he moaned and she knew he was finding release. Caring when she followed him over the edge. Friends cared, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, ending with a little irony. (laughs) Um, it was really.
1: It, it, this was such a great scene, and it made me like really excited to read the book, um, in particular, and see what is happening with these two characters. Who I think are, I think get, I think the road to getting here was probably really fun.
0: It was like one hundred and fifty pages of bantering and pulling back and, and trying to be honest. I mean, in some ways the scene I'm realizing is almost like a microcosm for everything in the book. up <laughs> <laughs> Like replayed.
1: Yeah. Okay. So you can tell me not to ask, like, you can be like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about this. But one thing yeah. that I had caught on your Instagram was, you know, that you had, said, if Chick Magnet was the book I had to write to mend some broken part of myself, then Funny Guy is the book I could write when I was healed. So Funny Guy is the next book that's coming yes. out that we had talked about. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I was wondering, like, can you expand on that a little bit? And only if you're comfortable. If you're if you're not, we can just blow right on past that question.
0: No. I mean, here's what I would say. Like, I went through this period for several years where – um I didn't think I could write anymore and I didn't know if I wanted to write anymore. And I was just feeling... I mean, like the, the question that was really paralyzing for me was, what's the point? And it just sort of felt like nothing that I did was ever going to like get traction in the market. And um, I just felt really overwhelmed and, and really broken in many ways. Um, and some of that was stuff that was happening, like not with my writing career. And some of it was like... Things that were happening in the world, but there was just this really like bleak moment for me that went on for a long time. Um, Mm -hmm. and even though nothing about what I was experiencing emotionally is at all similar to Will or Nick's issues, like it's not an autobiographical book or anything. But in writing these two characters who are both bruised in the ways that we talked about, who both like have a lot of baggage and who finds self actualization i think um but just like find a way back to some confidence and find a way back to the people they want to be and then are able to be kind of together and worthy of each other in that way something about that arc felt very healing for me and the things mm-hmm. that i needed to know in order to hear my own voice again um and so you know i think this is a book for both of them like will needs to learn that People can know that things are not working out with his business and still love him. Like that's Wick like Will's journey. Um, and Nick's journey is that she doesn't have to be defined by her ex and she doesn't have to be defined by her job. Like she can like find her like center again, who she is. And writing those journeys um helped me hear my own voice in a way that made it possible to then write a book that I mean is also not autobiographical in any way, but to write a book that I think is really joyous. I mean, I hope Chick Magnet is joyous and I hope there are funny moments in magnet, but it's also a book about healing in many ways. Right. and I needed that message. you know, I needed that so much. Um, and so I had to kind of write this book, I think, to feel confident enough um, to keep writing and and to find the joy in that again.
1: Yeah. So selfishly, because I feel like I'm at that point where you mm-hmm. were before you wrote Chick Maggot, where I'm kind of feeling like, well, what is the point? Nothing. Yeah. Right. You know. And I have gotten traction on some of my books, but it just feels like it's not enough. Uh, and yeah. You know. Had to go get a day job. You know. Yeah. <laughs> and so and so I'm kind of there right now, and I'm just kind of curious. How did you? How did you get this book? To, how, how did this book become the catalyst? Right. Like, how did you pick yourself up and even write it?
0: Yeah. So. I am a person who wants like all the external validation and all the gold stars. Okay, like I mean, if there is like if there's an A in book promo, L, like I want it. Like I would like someone to send me a report card when Chick Magnet comes out, like an A in all the subjects. It's it's so bad and it's so unhealthy. But what I had to do was to say, as much as I want those things, and I can, and I'm never going to be able to stop wanting those things. It's just who I am. But I have to have the work be intrinsically valuable. And I have to feel like there's enough in this for me that even if I'm like Emily Dickinson and the book sits in a drawer and no one else ever reads it, that there was still a point in me writing it. And so I had, I mean, this gets out what we were talking about earlier with like, do you think about the reader? But I had to shut the reader out because I had really paralyzed myself thinking so much about like, because I had, the story I was telling myself was you're not a commercial writer, Emma. Like you're a writer's writer and writers like your books and you get good reviews, but you're never going to find readers. And I had to be like, F that, then I'm a writer's writer. And then I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to write this book for me. It's going to be a weird book. It's going to be about chickens. And uh, the are going to be depressed. And and that's going to be fine. And honestly, like being selfish a little bit, and I, it's still a commercial book, but being selfish and being like, I don't care about the market, helped me write something that's sold. I mean, again, I don't know whether the book's going to find readers. Who knows? Like, you know, it right, may be right. another failure, but at minimum, t- tuning that out tuning that stuff out and hearing myself and like turning the volume up on me Mm -hmm. was the best thing I could do. So, I mean, I don't know, like your journey is going to be different than mine. And geez, I'm so sorry. Like it was such a sucky period for me. And I have so much empathy for anyone who's in that space. (laughs) But what I can say is your voice matters even if no one else hears it. And I think trying to find the value in that just for you Mm -hmm. um, can help, or at least it helped me.
1: I, I kind of love that you're sh- sort of saying like I'm I'm not gonna I'm just gonna write this book for me yeah um because you know you're sort of I I it's it I think that you're concerned like I might not find readers I don't know Montlake is that the division of Amazon and they know what really like they, they know those they know they have the algorithms they have that back end they know what's selling and that's why I kind of feel like. Oh, I think this will be fine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I hope it's true, but here's what happens in my head. I'm like, right, but I'll be the one that fails. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, but, so but, but sincerely I know I'm, I'm I'm the ourselves. worst. We're all awful to ourselves, but yeah, no, it's 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 bad. But I feel. Ha- I mean, if that happens, that would be sad and I would be sad, but I also know that it would be okay because I think as I've crawled out of that hole once, I'm like, I'm not going back in that hole again. Like I just, yeah. it has to be for you. And if it is, then the rest of it doesn't matter as much. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter at all, but it doesn't matter as much. Okay. This was great,
1: Emma. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really great to get to know you and and get to know your chickens. Um, and, <laughs> and, and so, Chick Magnet will be out by this by the time um, this airs, and I think also Funny Guy too might be it as well. But. Where can people find you on the internet? Where do you hang out the most?
0: So my website is authoremmaberry.com and there's links to all my socials. I'm on Instagram, and I'm on um, Twitter, and there's a link to my Spotify. If you want book playlists, they're all there. Um, But I would say I'm probably – I mean, I'm on Instagram almost, almost every day, and I'm on Twitter almost every day.
1: Okay. That's always good to know. And always, I will have links in the show notes. So if you're driving your car, you don't have to stop, pull over, or get in an accident. Don't get in an accident. We don't like that. Emma, thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you so much for having me, El. It was so much fun. Um, Anytime.
1: And- Come back. <laughs> Come
0: back. <Well. laughs>